Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, and joining me today are Emma Ajaman, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Peter Hewitt, Manager of the FNC Managed Portfolio Trust Range. Investors commonly turn to investment trusts for exposure to both traditional assets, like equities and bonds, and alternatives such as private equity, real estate and infrastructure. The combination of different trusts running different strategies is one way, of course, to create a diversified portfolio. Peter, this is a strategy you've been running for a while, both for income and growth. So why is it you choose to create a portfolio entirely from investment trusts rather than using other options, such as individual companies or open-ended funds? It's an interesting one. I would say that a portfolio of investment trusts can give you a level of diversity, which just owning perhaps an individual stock wouldn't afford you. And also investment trusts in general tend to uh, slightly outperform open-ended funds. So if you can lock into a decent range of investment trusts, and in my uh, fund we've got about 40, then hopefully if you can select the right ones, then performance should be hopefully a bit above average and a little bit below in terms of, of risk. And also it's it's very important to understand that investment trusts, yes, they have a lot of similarities to open-ended funds, but because they are a closed-end fund, there is something called a capital structure, which can sound a bit boring, but actually can act to your advantage in terms of a little bit of gearing or borrowing. And if markets are rising, that can enhance performance a little. So for these reasons, uh, diversity, slightly lower risk, and hopefully slightly better performance, you can end up with uh, you know some decent returns. Okay, so what about the what about the cost element? There, there seems to be a perception that open-ended funds, particularly in the more the wider asset classes, you know the big ones, UK equities, US equities, uh, etc., the open-ended funds are cheaper and perhaps easier to trade for private investors. Just going via a platform, you don't have to deal with kind of stamp duty and shares, etc., and things like that. So how do you how do you overcome that situation? Yes, I think that y- you have to. L- there is a cost difference um, in, in, in each case. So you could have a manager actually who runs both an open-ended fund and a closed-ended fund. And if you can, it's useful to try and work out what the relative costs are. Uh, in some cases, investment trusts are less, particularly the bigger ones. I mean, the biggest one is Scottish Mortgage. That's in the FTSE 100. And I think that that charges 0.3 or 0.4% in terms of its management costs, so it's quite low. But you will get other examples of smaller investment trusts which could be the same as or maybe even more expensive than open-ended funds. So not easy to make an overarching general comment, um, but you do have to be aware of costs, and I, I certainly am. It's, it's important. Apart from cost, what are the other what are the aspects you look at when you're evaluating which investment trust to buy? Well, first and foremost, it's who's running the investment trust, and um, and that really is the, the individual manager. So I do a lot of meetings with managers. I think if you can have a one-to-one meeting, perhaps for an hour or so, you don't have to do it that often, but really try and understand the investment strategy, the investment style that is being deployed? Is there a consistent process? 
what is the depth of resource behind the manager, um, and then also asking questions which you wouldn't get with open-ended funds about things like the dividend policy, gearing, the allocation of costs. They all may sound a little bit boring, but actually at the end of the day, if you can get the right ones, it helps. And and one other thing, um, Taha, which is very interesting, I often meet managers who do run open-ended funds as well as closed-ended funds. And I can tell you in almost every single case, if you ask them, and which one do you hold, your investment trust or your unit trust, they will almost always say the investment trust. That's quite interesting. Is there, is there a reason for that, do you think? Well, I kind of think follow the money. <laughs> um, and I think it's because, yeah, investment trusts do perform a little better over the longer run. And the prime reason for that is a modest amount of gearing. By gearing, you mean uh, borrowing, borrowings, in- increasing your exposure to the market, yeah. Exactly. Of course, you can underperform if there's a, a bear market. There's no question about that. But actually, most of the time, markets actually go sideways or rise a little. So you do tend to find over a five or ten year period, your investment trust will do a little better than your unit trust. Okay. And so when, when you're looking at your, your holdings or looking to buy a holding or sell a holding, how much attention are you paying to the premium and the discount? That's obviously a, a, an aspect of investment trusts that you don't get in the open-ended space as well. So. Yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. And uh, I do pay attention to it. I would say it's not the dominant factor. So, that, so an investment trust selling at a discount doesn't immediately become a buy or one selling at a modest premium immediately a sell. But it is an influence over a a buy and a sell um, decision. Um, To be honest with you, the key thing is getting the right manager who can perform. If you think about it, if you buy something at a 15 discount and you've got the right trust and it performs well and the discount closes in, maybe goes to par, that's fantastic. It's great for your return. But it's also a one-off. Over the longer run, if you get somebody who can consistently beat, say, the all-share index, if it's a UK trust, that will dominate the returns you get. And so I do try and find well-managed trusts at a discount, but I'm not wholly put off if the discount has recently narrowed or they may even be selling at par. Depends on the manager, depends on the asset class also. Okay, um, just just that point. Obviously, um, discount closing is quite short term trading, and a lot of people try and do that. But how actively are you kind of buying, selling, or even trimming holdings? Well, I, I try and be a long term investor. Um, and to be honest with you, if I buy a, a trust, I will probably hold it at least three years. Um, if then the performance hasn't come up to scratch, I'll have a look again at it. And perhaps I might sell it then. But typically, I'm looking to hold it for much longer. I mean, the uh, investment trust I run, a fund of investment trusts, is just over 10 years old. And actually, there's quite a number of holdings were put in on day one, and I still have them. Okay. So uh, I think being a longer-term investor, you, you, you can actively buy and sell shares, but, but the one issue is often liquidity, And I'd have to say that's something you have to be aware of with investment trust, liquidity being the ability to buy and the ability to sell. 
perhaps less important if you're an individual investor uh, buying a, f- a few hundred or a few thousand shares. If you're a bigger investor, you do have to be... A- it's easy if it's Scottish mortgage, which is valued at seven or eight billion. But if it's a hundred million pound fund... Um, you have to be aware that you might not be able to buy or sell your holding immediately. You may have to take time. But if you understand that, then it can be done. Okay. So what what does prompt you to to make changes? Um, So you say, no, you you hold for at least three, but some you've held for 10. So what what kind of situation has prompted you to make any changes um, aside from asset allocation, perhaps? Well, certainly performance. And there's a lot in that comment. There are some managers who adopt a particular style, maybe a value style of uh, or value approach, and really they've had it kind of uphill and into the wind for the last few years. So I wouldn't expect a value-based manager to be top of the of the league tables in performance but I do look relative to the rest of the peer group and if I see people um, you know disappointing and in my view it's perhaps just due to stock selection and if it persists that's when you're looking at saying well perhaps you know I should be saying enough is enough here and particularly if there's another one perhaps in the same sector that I'm now quite interested in, maybe new managers taken over or whatever. So certainly performance is really the key thing, and that's really asset growth. Um, certainly premiums and discounts, if something does go to quite a significant premium, you have to understand why, and uh, if it really is quite significant, I may well take profits then also. Okay. Um, obviously, by, by limiting your your investment trust to buying on the investment trusts, um, I think one thing that, that struck me about the the industry itself was that there, there aren't that many IPOs these days. It seems to be you know, there's a well, what what is it going to exist in the investment trust space, which you know which is 150 years old, kind of already does exist. So are you concerned about the the lack of perhaps innovation that you get in the investment trust space compared to particularly with the open ender space, which you know you see fund launches almost every every month? I actually took an IPO last week. <laughs> <laughs> which is completely different. I mean, it, it's one that is um, a music copyright fund, which is uh, something you'd never see in an open-ended That's vehicle. very true. That is very true. Uh, and it will hopefully generate a decent dividend yield and perhaps a little bit of capital performance. I think your point is well made. That There are not as many equity-based issues as I would like, but there are still some. You, you do see some of these coming through often, um, from boutiques or somebody who's got a successful open-ended fund may try and launch a closed-end equivalent. Uh, so we, I noticed this, that you, you hold the Coupling Cardiff, which is uh, relatively do. new, I think, is it about one or two years old? But. It is, and that has been a really good performer, and they are a boutique specialising in Japanese equities. It was called Japan Income and Growth. I mean, goodness me, getting a dividend yield out of Japan. <laughs> but they do. The performance has been really good. So uh, they had an additional C-share issue, and I took some shares in that. But you, you're right, you've probably got a greater breadth of, uh, of choice in, in open-ended funds. But with closed-ended, it does allow you to access some relatively illiquid asset classes like private equity, property, infrastructure, as well as some areas of the equity market where you perhaps don't get as much coverage or trading 
And so sometimes these can be quite attractive. Okay. I think the other thing that is, is worth talking about is the, the impact the independence of boards has um, on, on investment trusts compared to, obviously, the open-ended space, although that might change in the future given where regulations are heading. How much attention do you place on the, the, the kind of board structure that's there and the independence of boards on each, on each trust that you buy? I think it's important, and it's kind of a major positive for shareholders, for retail shareholders, knowing that there is a board who are not employed by the fund management company who are overseeing that trust, the performance of it and all the aspects, marketing, accounting, the whole works. And I think it's it's quite important. Uh, and so you, you can kind of ho- hopefully get confidence from a corporate governance viewpoint. I mean, in, in our case, we vote at AGMs on every single issue. Um, and so typically if it's length of tenure of the chairman, for example, um, and we will vote against if the chairman's been on the board for um, too long, um, m- maybe 12, 15 years or more, you start to think that really there should be a level of turnover of the board and get new people on, new blood. That's just an example. Um, But I think having independent boards is a major positive from a shareholder point of view. Okay. Um, So as we we mentioned earlier, you run a a growth trust and an income trust. Um, So perhaps you could talk us through a couple of your favourites. Well, in the Growth Trust, uh, and actually it's quite interesting, uh, we've been going 10 years, and really for the first five, the Income Trust performed really significantly better than I would have expected. It outperformed the All Share Index, and it did much better than the Growth Trust. I guess this is down to having kind of high-quality dividend names in there. Yes. Or, or, sorry, trusts that buy those kind of companies. So. Well, well you're, you're right, Taha. The, the equity income sector, both the UK and global equity income sector, was a great place to be 2010, 11, 12, 13. Discounts closed, and they had the types of stocks that were performing in markets, be it the UK or, 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 or overseas. More recently, the last three or four years, the growth portfolio has done really quite well. And if you look at my growth portfolio, the top 10 is peppered with trusts that specialise in what I would term secular growth areas like technology, healthcare, biotechnology. So, for example... Um, that I had the management of the Alliance Technology Trust in um, the, the other day, and that's run out of San Francisco. Um, it's invested wholly in technology stocks. A lot of them are based in Silicon Valley. They're right on the doorstep. And yes, they've got some of the bigger well-known names, um, Amazon, Google, Facebook, but they also have access to and invest in some of the newer Um, companies that are coming to the market which um, in areas that will probably be quite significant in you know in time and I like that and the Alliance Technology Trust has done you know really quite well I bought the shares god I'm trying to think eight or nine years ago and made over five times the money so it's done well so I like these um Areas In the income portfolio, I've tried to get one or two trusts like that. And one I'm going to suggest that's now in my top 10 is called BB Healthcare. 
Now, yes, it invests in the wider healthcare sector, a lot of it in the US, because that's where a lot of these companies are based. But it also uses the investment trust structure and it pays a 3.5% dividend yield each year. The underlying holdings don't generate much in terms of revenue, but you can pay a dividend from the capital value of the trust. And if that's done in a modest way, not being too greedy, it does allow you to invest in the likes of a healthcare trust where an income portfolio, typically you're investing in higher yielding, more mature companies, which is fine, but you're perhaps not getting access to the more exciting, interesting areas, growth areas. So the income portfolio, that's now well into my top ten and performing strongly, BB Healthcare. No, it's an interesting strategy using a, a kind of non-income sector to, to income by a couple of growth. But yeah, as you say, one of the one of the good things about trusts. Um, you, you mentioned uh, an IPO earlier on. So how often do you participate in, uh, in initial public offerings? I do do sometimes, actually. Um, I mean, BB Healthcare was about 18 months ago it, it came to, to the market. Um, the Hypnosis Songs Fund last week. Uh, so, y- y- yes, and I do think um, it used to be years gone by that new issues would go immediately to a discount. Um, that's changed now, and they often go to a small premium. Um, and if it's an in, if I, if you like the management team, and if you think the return profile is uh, attractive, whether it be as in the songs fund mainly income, or uh, in the case of the Coupland Cardiff Japan income and growth, a balance between capital and and and, and income, um, you, you know I would take an, an an investment, and I have done, and will do hopefully in the future also. Okay, well thank you very much for that, Peter. That was really interesting. Sticking with the Fund of Fund theme, uh, this week saw Jupiter launch an absolute return Fund of Funds uh, to be managed by its Merlin team. Uh, Emma, what's this fund trying to do? Yes, that's right, Taha. The new fund is called Jupiter Merlin Real Return, and it's actually a UK version of a fund that Jupiter runs, um, which is Luxembourg-based. And the new fund is going to be aiming to make 3% above CPI inflation over a three-year rolling period. It's going to be managed, as you said, by the Merlin team, which is led by John Chatfield-Roberts, and the team has 18 years' experience um, running long, short funds. And so this fund is basically mostly going to be investing in absolute return funds. They're going to make up about two-thirds of a portfolio. They're going to be mostly in these long, short um, strategies, basically, that they make bets on on share prices falling as well as appreciating. And as well as absolute return funds, the portfolio is also going to have about a quarter in equity funds and 5% in cash and 5% in physical gold. Um, okay, great. So you mentioned that this was uh, a strategy they've been running for some time via their Luxembourg fund. What does that tell us about how, how well this UK one might do? What, what yeah, have we seen? Uh, the Luxembourg fund, um, which is called Jupiter Merlin Real Return Portfolio, has a good track record. It launched in 2013 and up until the end of June this year, it had made 41% over that that period and it's actually also returned positive results in three of the past four years which is important for absolute return funds because the whole aim of the game is to to not lose money so three out of four years is, is pretty good okay obviously merlin is a is as close to a household name you get for for fund of funds perhaps often criticized for having slightly expensive funds so where does where does this one fall in terms of charges 
So the thing with investing in a fund of funds is that you've got two layers of fees. Um, at one level, you've got the um, underlying funds fees and you've also got the manager's fees who's, who's investing in these funds. And so they are going to be more expensive. And for this fund, the fee is going to be 1.53%. But the good news is that unlike many absolute return funds and strategies, there's not going to be a performance fee. Oh, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, I suppose that would be, I imagine a lot of the underlying funds probably do have performance fees as well. So yeah. it's probably good to see that the, the, the top level fund doesn't have that. Have you been speaking to some analysts? What, what have they been saying about this? Yeah, I mean, generally, um, analysts found the fund quite interesting because there's not that many fund funds that invest specifically in absolute return funds. So they did think it was an interesting proposition. Um, some analysts sort of felt that because it's got this exposure, you know, about a quarter of its portfolio in equities, that could make it more linked to equity markets. So um, if, you know, we were to get a bear market, it might actually be more likely to to make a negative return. That's what one point that some analysts were making. But the others also said that because the underlying strategies do have this long, short profile, actually that could make it more defensive because in theory, these funds could also um, profit if markets do fall. So there's a little, little bit of debate as to actually how this fund is going to perform in the markets that we see. But generally, I think the analysts were found an interesting proposition. Okay. Uh, Peter, you're, you're, a, you're a fund of fund manager. What does this new Jupiter product say to you? So is a collection of complex absolute return strategies uh, something pirate investors could use in their portfolio? It could be. I don't know this in detail, and, and Emma was outlining it. And certainly what you can say is Jupiter are well-known, tend to perform reasonably well, got a lot of resource, so I suspect they'll be able to put together an interesting collection of funds. I think it, it only time will tell whether the performance will uh, come through, but it's probably something that's not that easily replicated, and I suspect there's not that many funds trying to do this so it may be of interest okay um and in terms of i appreciate you don't you don't buy any absolute return funds yourself but um how much how difficult is it to to kind of monitor the the underlying holding correlation when you when you're dealing with a strategy like this i think that's quite difficult yes and uh you would you'd hope that jupiter are able to do that and then be able to show you in in presentations what the underlying holdings are their volatility their risk how they perform in different market circumstances. The key thing with absolute return funds is how they do when markets are a bit choppy, difficult, or even in a bear phase. And, uh, I mean, absolute return is relatively straightforward if things are going up. Um, but what you really want is one that can hold its value, maybe even eke out a positive return um, if markets are, are, are not that way. So, um, you know, but it does sound an interesting one, I have to be honest. No, so it's a really interesting point and definitely one thing to know about um, the track record so far. Um, obviously, since 2013, the markets have been relatively upward moving. But, yes, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how this one does uh, when, when times turn down. Okay, thanks for that, Emma and Peter. Turning back to investment trusts, uh, Emma, we've been looking at the Invesco Perpetual Enhanced Income situation this week uh, in a bit more detail. We had a resolution quite recently. Can you uh, tell us about this? Yes, um, but I think it's actually important to go back a bit because this has been a really interesting uh, dispute between the trust and its manager. So in April, Invesco Perpetual, who were the managers of this trust, um, resigned from managing the trust. And the board said that was because they've been trying to um, negotiate with the manager about a cut in fees and wanting to drop its performance fee. And so the board claimed that, you know, that was the main reason for um, this dispute. Subsequently, Invesco 
Investigator Petchel came out to say that they'd actually resigned because of an untenable working relationship with the board, who they said were overly aggressive. And then Investigator Petchel, which who owns about 17% of the trust shares, got together with another institutional shareholder and to call an extraordinary general meeting and try and force the, the trust chairman and um, the chair of the management engagement committee to step down. So it did get quite ugly. Um, as you say, we have had a resolution now. And, and what's happened is that Investigative Petrol has been reappointed as the manager of the trust. And there has been a cut in fees and the performance fee has been scrapped. But as part of that, the chairman and the management um, the other individual in the chair that the investor was trying to force out have agreed to step down. OK, so so it seems like, you know, both sides might call this a win. So it sounds like it's positive for all parties, a lower fee for shareholders, which I suppose is always a good thing. And they get to keep the managers that they, they bought, um, essentially. But is there anything shareholders should be concerned about here? Yes. I mean, you know, as you say, there has been quite a few positives to come out of it, but there are still a few issues. Um so, for example, if all the fees have fallen, they are still above average compared to other flexible um, bond trusts. And of all, we don't have confirmation as to exactly what the ongoing charge is going to be. Looking at funds in in this area, the fees can range from about 0.34% to 1.25%. And we think that actually, you know, this the charges for this, even the reduced charges are still going to be on the slightly higher end. The other issue is that the trust has a lot more gearing than many other trusts in general. So it's got about 20% of gearing to its net asset value. And as we were talking about earlier, gearing can be a bit of a double-edged sword. When markets are doing well, it can boost returns. But if markets fall, it can amplify losses. Um, and arguably, you know, we are getting to later in the cycle, in the credit cycle, Um this fund has around 80% of its asset in high-yield bonds, which are generally riskier than other types of bonds. And there is an argument that, you know, with its level of gearing and its higher risk profile, they could see more defaults, which could lead to poorer future returns. OK, so definitely still some things for shareholders to consider yeah. whether this is the, the right strategy for them. Um, Peter, the IPE situation is uh, is quite bizarre. It's a public spat over fees and between the board and the manager. doesn't really make anyone look that good. As a trust buyer, what did you make of the situation? Well, you're speaking to quite a significant shareholder in this trust who was aware and agreed with all of what Emma was saying there. First and foremost, it's performed quite well over the longer run, despite higher fees and probably too high fees. And I'm delighted they've been reduced. Um, it's disappointing that the managers and the board fell out with each other Although you should know, uh, the chairman had been on the board 19 years. So and to, to your earlier point. We had voted against him for the last two or three years, been on too long, not good. So I'm very pleased that we've got Invesco back in charge because they're super managers. I think the overall fee is somewhere about 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 now. It was higher. But the one other thing I would mention is the trust had traded at a premium quite a small trust actually uh, and had been issuing shares for a number of years and had got up to about 120 million in in size um, when you have to when you look at fees you have to realize that's quite a small trust 
It's domiciled in Jersey. There's a lot of extra management time and expense to that um, for a bond team that run 30-odd billion. Um, now, they're quite good. The managers, the, man- the individual managers, own quite a bit of this trust, which I think is a positive. So, I mean, overall, I'm a holder of the trust. It's got a dividend yield of 6%, which I think is going to be quite consistent. Um, But it it wasn't a great spat. It probably should never have happened. But I think we've got a decent outcome at the end of the day. Are you you still kind of annoyed about the the share price? I mean, the share price hasn't recovered to where it was before before this kind of became public. It's... It was trading at a premium of 6 or 7%, um, Taha, which probably is a bit extended. I think trading at par, maybe a 2 or 3 premium is about where it should be. There is no science behind that comment. That's just experience talking. It's there now. Um, and I, I feel reasonably happy about it um, going forward. Uh, but I thought it was interesting, the share price reaction when Invesco resigned. It came back quite sharply. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, it's quite interesting to say that, you know, there was a lot of people that were saying, fine, the board may have had a point about the fees, but the fact of the matter is people are buying this trust to access the Invesco bond managers, Paul Reed, Paul Corsa, mm. um, well, you know, key figureheads in this industry. Um, so how do you, have you come across any kind of corporate kind of fallouts like this before? How, how do you react to them? How did you react to, to the situation at the time? Well, it, it happens actually not that often. Um, and, I mean, in this case, I was disappointed to lose uh, or potentially lose Invesco. Uh, so at the end of the day, I'm now quite happy we've got them back. And what's more, we've got them back at lower fees and actually not a performance fee. And probably Invesco themselves realised that um, the fees were too high. Uh, y- you can get some corporate situations i don't like to be involved in this i'm certainly not an activist um uh, but uh, you you have to sometimes just try and objectively analyze the situation um often it can come about with a manager leaving you know you can then make your decision on the basis of that and just try and look at the situation that you've got with each individual trust. You seldom get what's just happened with Invesco Perpetual Enhanced Income, though. It's, it's not that common. OK, great. Thank you for that. Thank you, Emma and Peter. So that's all we have time for today, but please don't forget to read this week's magazine or on the website for more on the new Jupiter Fund, uh, Invesco Perpetual Enhanced Income, and some potential replacement funds if it's not your bag, junior ices, and much more. Have a good weekend.